Journalist uh, Sebastian Younger notes in his book, uh, Tribe, a strange phenomenon that happened in the 18th century uh, during the founding of our country. Up and down the coast of uh, America, where all the colonies were, white settlers began fleeing cities and colonies to live among Native American tribes. And this baffled the English, who really thought that what they were doing was bringing civilization to America. That they were bringing a better way of life, better standards of living to America. And that once the native peoples had experienced this kind of life, then well, they would leave their old ways and they would come to this new way of life. But uh, Benjamin Franklin actually notes this phenomenon into a letter that he writes to a friend that whenever Native American children were brought up in an American colony, whenever they're taught English and the English way of life, he says, at the first chance, they would return to their tribe, which makes sense to most of us. We think, well, of course, at first chance, you'd return to your family and to the people that you were among. But what they would note was that the same thing would not happen to English settlers who would get kidnapped or taken in by Native American tribes. He said when they would rescue people who had been captured by Native tribes and had lived among them for a while, when they'd bring them back into an English colony after some time, this is how Franklin puts it, they become disgusted with our manner of life and they take the first good opportunity of escaping back into the woods. A French immigrant in 1782 whose name I cannot pronounce, so I'm not going to try, uh, he interpreted the same phenomenon in this way. There must be in their social bond something singularly captivating and far superior to anything to be boasted of among us. That His interpretation is it was not the call of the wild, it was the call of community. It was the call of society. Now, this is not to romanticize life in Native America in any way. What it is, is to point out the flaw in most modern Western thinking that tells us that standards of living lead to quality of life. That an improved standard of living will improve your quality of life. Because by all conceivable metrics, our standards of living are exponentially better than they were at that time, 200 years ago. Technology has made life and work easier. Most of us are not having to do manual labor every single day or at increasing amounts on top of our normal job to grow crops and to put food on our table. We have more protections for human and civil liberties and civil rights than we've ever had in human history. Life expectancy is higher than it's ever been. But so is depression and anxiety, loneliness, suicidal thoughts. They're all on the rise. During the pandemic, uh, these numbers shot up by nearly 25%. The World Health Organization attributes this primarily not due to the fears and the anxieties and the kind of stress of a global pandemic, but primarily to social isolation, to kind of being brought into just you and your family. The fears and the stresses of the virus and the, the work and the home life balance that kind of all got out of whack, it contributed, but it was the lack of communal and social interaction that made this kind of life unbearable 
for many of us. Now, when you compare that to a crisis that happened about 100 years ago in our world, the London Blitz, where Nazi bombers bombarded the city of London for almost eight months, and there was one point where 56 out of 57 days bombs dropped. And it resulted in 43,500 deaths. The government leaders were certain when the bombings began in September of 1940 that mental health issues would just skyrocket, that anxiety would increase, depression would increase, mental hospitalizations would increase. They would just go through the roof. But what they were shocked by is the exact opposite happened. The exact opposite happened. There were fewer hospitalizations in 1940 than in the previous year. And, as one psychologist points out, now, he's Canadian, so you don't have to trust him, but as one psychologist points out, depression rates actually dipped during the London Blitz and then increased afterwards. And in, in, in his article in the Atlantic, journalist David Brooks notes, government censors found that morale was actually highest in the most badly hit places. Standard of living went down. Quality of life somehow went up. The quality of their life went up. How does this happen? Brooks notes one of the reasons why was the intense social connection that the Blitz caused. He says people were forced together every night in tightly packed groups or family shelters. They sat shoulder to shoulder and they lay in crowded bunks with heads touching heads. Not ideal. Uh, they coped with hardship together. It was not an increased standard of living, it was the call of community. It was being together. Now, you might be thinking, thanks for inviting me to your TED Talk, bro. What does this have to do with anything? Well, let me kind of explain. First, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here on staff. And as Ed's already said, last week, we started talking about these wisdom writings in this book of the Bible called the Proverbs. And there are a lot of Proverbs about how you should handle friendships, how you should handle uh, your parenting, how you should handle all kinds of relationships in your life. But before we get to any of those kind of Proverbs, what became kind of apparent to us as we started talking about it was we felt like we needed to address something that the writer of the Proverbs well, they would have just taken for granted as if it didn't even need to be said. It's just the way everyone was already living. It goes without saying. In, in the Proverbs, in, in the narrative of Scripture, there's this idea that human beings are made for community. And not just community with your spouse. And not just community with your wife. You are made for a larger community. See, the Proverbs are not a TED Talk. They are not isolated bits of wisdom that you can just take and apply as you want to take and apply them. They may help you, but they're not the kind of cute things you put on a coffee mug and everyone goes, oh, ain't that sweet? That's a good idea. The Proverbs are Scripture, and that is an important distinction. What I mean is, last week we began this series with the words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom writings of Proverbs and in the Bible, they exist within the context of the story of the Bible. They really, truly only make sense within the context of this greater kind of story. A story that begins with God creating human beings in His image. In the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, one being, 
three persons, a community of love unto himself. That to be human is to be made for community, to be made in God's image, to be made to love. We are in his image. We are made for community, which is why when God creates humanity, after he's created all creation, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. He creates a human being, and then he says, it is not good for man and for human beings, is what he really means, human beings, to be alone. So he creates a partner, and he makes man and woman. And this idea is not solely about marriage. This is about the idea of us being made for community, for relationships with one another that ingrained within us as human beings, there is a desire for relationship, for friendship, for community. And so it's important that you know the Proverbs were written to a tribal kind of society, more in common with a closely knit Native American tribal society than our modern hyper individualistic world where I am the source of my own life. There was no industrialization. There were no grocery stores for you to go and take care of yourself. So ancient Israelites had to. It was a necessity of life that you would actually rely on other people and that you would live in relationship with other people. And so it's almost just assumed in the book of Proverbs when they talk about friendship and relationship. There's almost this assumption that human beings are living in relationship with your neighbors and your friends and your families and that these relationships exist within a wider framework of a communal kind of society. It was not written with the idea in mind of this hyper-individualistic world. And the reason I bring this up is because in the, in, the, in the world of the Proverbs, most people would have lived in some kind of relational network where you would have known the people around you. But in our world, it is not hard to imagine that I would go to work or go into a grocery store, or walk down a street, or even walk into church, and most of the faces I see are strangers. That I don't know their name. That they are complete strangers to me. And we don't think of that as weird, because it goes without saying in our world. There's just too many people. How am I going to know all these people? How am I going to know everyone? But it goes without saying in the book of Proverbs. You would just know people. But it's also important to know this hasn't even always been that way in our country. In the 1980s, most Americans, when asked, would say they have at least three close confidants. They would have three people in their life, and they mean people outside their family, that they would have been able to call if they had need, if they needed to talk to someone, if they needed to go do something. They would have three people that they would be able to rely on, who they could be vulnerable with, honest with, they could trust people that they could trust to know the details of their life. In the last decade, 40% of Americans, two out of every five, would say they have zero meaningful relationships in their life. And I just recently heard a study says it's now 53% of Americans. The majority of people that you encounter would say, outside of maybe a spouse, they have zero meaningful relationships that they could trust. And committed relationships are also declining. Marriage rates are declining in the U.S., especially among wealthier people. Birth rates are declining. In doing research for this sermon, I came across a book that said that bowling on teams has declined. What? <laughs> There's apparently a, a book came out 
25 years ago called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, which is apparently a go-to for sociologists. And the name of the book comes from the statistic that he found in the year 2000 that the number of people who would say they go bowl has increased by like, at that point, like 30%. But the numbers of people who bowl on teams and in leagues had dropped through the floor. And what they found was, in his, in his studies, as he go, goes on, that was a jumping off point, that he found all kinds of social and civic engagements had drastically decreased in American society. How many of us are Kiwanis Club members? How much of people under the age of 30 are Kiwanis Club members? It drops through the floor. And any kind of community that requires a commitment from you is almost disappeared. Church, civic engagement, any kind of relationship that requires me to be committed to you has completely dropped through. And that was 25 years ago. They just released a new edition of the book and it's almost non-existent now. We live in a relational and a communal desert in our world. And here's the deal. If you've been in church most of your life, that research sounds like I'm talking about a foreign country. You have a lot of meaningful relationships in your life. And you assume everyone you have a relationship with also has tons of meaningful relationships in their life. But you should know, for many of us, and I would say many of us in this room, that is not your experience of this life. These stories, these numbers, they hit close to home because you got the job of your dream. You went to college, you figured it out, you did the whole thing, you got the job, you even got the spouse, but outside of them, you have zero meaningful relationships in your life. And you may even go to an office every day or a school or a church that is full of people, but no one really knows you. And you spend most of your day online reading and watching and viewing the relational lives of other people and then that increases your feeling of isolation. And you should know that longing that you have in your heart, it comes from God because you were made to do life with other people. You were made for community. We were created to know others deeply and to be known by them. We were created to love God and others and to be loved by them. There is nothing wrong with this desire that you have. It comes from God, and that means God wants to meet that desire. And the good news is he has a plan to do that. One of the greatest gifts that God gave to human beings is friendship. But somehow maintaining healthy relationships is one of the most difficult parts of life. I think one reason why is because we overvalue the importance of chemistry in relationships. Now, chemistry is important in beginning any relationship. C.S. Lewis once famously said, friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. On the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it, just name it, ready? One, two, three. Velociraptor. What, did we just become best friends? Yep. We can all relate to the exciting feeling of seeing in another person something you thought was only true of yourself. This kind of immediate bond is powerful, and I'm personally thankful for these kinds of relationships in my life. But chemistry is not powerful enough to maintain the kind of close connection we all long for over time. 
because this you two kind of bond is still based on me and my preferences and interests. For a relationship to be meaningful, it must be based in something more than ourselves. It requires commitment. This is what the author of Proverbs is getting at in Proverbs 27.10. Never abandon a friend, either yours or your father's. When disaster strikes, you won't have to ask your brother for assistance. It's better to go to a neighbor than to a brother who lives far away. Now there's a transactional way of reading this proverb. Don't burn bridges because one day you might need to ask a favor of people. But I think this is beyond good advice. As Nathan's already said, these proverbs are rooted in the story of the Bible, a story that establishes from the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. A story where God chooses a man without children and provides him with family. And to this family that had grown to a nation, God told them to love their neighbor as themselves. Even if their physical neighbor is someone not of their family, tribe, or nation, God said to Israel, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. God is saying that anyone who resides in Israel should be treated as a member of the community. You don't get to pick and choose. But yeah, God, we uh, just don't really click. We just come from different backgrounds and we have different interests. But the call of community is not the call of chemistry. It's the call of commitment. This is the context within which the Proverbs are written. A life of wisdom is a life rooted in community, a life where I belong to others and they belong to me. It's a life committed not only to God, but to others, because it's not good for men to be alone. And so the writer of Proverbs says, never abandon a friend, either yours or your father's. When disaster strikes, you won't have to ask your brother for assistance. It's better to go to a neighbor than to a brother who lives far away. Now there is some practical wisdom in this because it was written to a culture without air travel or the internet. And so if you're an Israelite man or woman living far away from your family and a disaster strikes, you can't start a GoFundMe and your family can't quickly travel to help you. So maintaining strong relationships with your physical neighbors and those in your community is very important because when you need help, you want them to help you. But I think there's more to it than that. I think this is a picture of the commitment to the community around you, not only to your friends, but to your father's friends. In a tribal culture like ancient Israel, relationships were not established on a chemistry basis, but on history and commitment. So you had family obligations to your father's friends and the writer of Proverbs is saying, the wise person is someone who is involved in the lives of people they belong to, their tribe. And not everyone in your tribe do you have a personal chemistry with, but you are committed to them in community. One time when Jesus was teaching in a crowded place, his mother and brothers and sisters showed up to talk to him. In tribal societies, your first and primary allegiance is to your blood family. And so when someone from the crowd told Jesus his family wanted to see him, it must have been shocking to hear Jesus respond, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was not dishonoring his mother and family by saying this, but he was redefining what allegiance a community looks like in the kingdom of God. And after Jesus' resurrection, he left his followers with a new tribe, a new family, the church. 
Suddenly, disciples of Jesus who had nothing in common, in fact, they often had come from tribes that were enemies of one another, began to refer to one another as brother and sister. And these church communities often had volatile chemistry with one another, but the call of Jesus and the call of the New Testament was for these disciples to lay aside their differences and to be united in love around what they all held in common, Jesus. When you read the descriptions of the early church in the Bible, what stands out to me the most is this, well, it's what you just heard, this beautiful picture of life together, not because they had to, but in spite of the things that would keep them apart. And the author Luke, who writes not only the gospel that tells us about Jesus, but the, writes the book of Acts that tells us about the church, says, they devoted themselves they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And all the believers were together. They had everything in common. These believers were not only devoted to Jesus. They understood that you didn't just belong to him. You belonged to all of his friends as well, to one another. We were the brothers and sisters in Christ. As we said to you on Easter Sunday, I believe in our divided world. In fact, I believe that for the history of Christianity, but in our world particularly where loneliness and division is just rampant, what better evidence could there be of the resurrection of Jesus than a community of people from all different backgrounds, from racial backgrounds and economic backgrounds and all kinds of backgrounds politically that could come together and love one another in spite of their differences because of their devotion to Jesus, they were also devoted to one another. And we would choose to follow Jesus, not just believe something about him, but we would be committed to his, to his family. Not a private spirituality, but life together in his body. So as we come together today and we're learning together about community, it only seems right that we would take time to remind each other physically and practice with one another that our time to be devoted to one another in fellowship and prayer. We've already heard some teaching about this. We've already listened to Molly and Nathan talk to us about it. We're going to take the bread of communion together in just a few minutes, but we want to devote ourselves to fellowship and prayer as well. So here's what we're going to do over the next few minutes. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to get in groups of three to five people and to share your name and one thing that you might want someone to pray about for you. And if you don't have anything to pray about, that's okay. Just say your name. And if you're here all the time and you always sit with the same people, which is all okay for the sake of inviting others into the family, into community, would you consider moving and joining another group? And if you're new to all of this and it just feels strange and uncomfortable, you know, you don't even have to take part in it if you don't want to. We're, we're not asking anybody to pray out loud. That's not going to happen. We're going to get a name. There's going to be a request about something to pray for. It doesn't even have to be deeply personal. That's fine. But I'm going to ask you to engage at whatever level you can because you came here to encounter God. And who knows that this might be the glimpse of where you encounter him best through his community. So we want to give you a moment to do that. And as I always like to remind those of you who are really comfortable here and you talk too much like me, 
you only have three minutes for the whole group, not three minutes individually. <laughs> and I only said, tell your name and a request. None of your names are that long. So share your names, a short prayer request, and then you can just return to your seat and then I'm going to pray out loud for the whole experience. So if you feel comfortable, take a moment right now, get in groups of three to five, share your name and a prayer request. Let's do that together now. Would you, would you take your seat and uh, let's, let's pray together? Father, Father in heaven, I know that every person in this place is precious to you. In fact, every person that you can see that we don't see in this room and on this planet, they are precious in your sight. And 
I can only imagine how much it must break your heart that one of your kids would live in loneliness. So God, we are thankful for this great idea you had of community, that you'd put us together and that we don't have to be exactly alike, but we can belong. So would you help us devote ourselves to what you're devoted to, community and love for one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So there's another proverb that's more direct about our need for community. It goes like this. One who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. And uh, that may not sound all that direct. So there's an even more direct version of this that comes from the message, uh, kind of paraphrase translation of it that says, Loners who only care for themselves spit on the common good. Now, this rails against a lot of what I would call just American culture, especially in those last three words, the common good, because most of us don't think a lot about the common good. A lot of us think about our own good, the good of my kids, the good of my family. I think about my good, my happiness. No one wants to be against the common good. Just not really sure there is too much of a common good. There's, there's my good, I look out for my good, you look out for your good, and as long as we don't hurt one another, everything's good or hurt one another too bad, right? We've been taught this is good and moral. I mean, what are the kind of three fundamental rights, right, that, that come from, our, from, uh, from God according to our Declaration of Independence, right? It's life, it's liberty, it's the pursuit of the common good. No? The pursuit of happiness. And whose happiness? My happiness. Give me life. Give me liberty. Give me the freedom, the space to choose for myself what's good for me, and you choose what's good for you. And as long as we're not hurting one another, then that's the way it goes. But that's about as far as my obligation to you goes is not to do too much harm to you. Not to do too much good for you. But see, the book of Proverbs is written within the context of the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures which Jesus said could be summed up by giving your entire life, your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the writer of this proverb is saying, the wise person is the person who chooses not to separate themselves off and pursue their own desires, their own pursuit of happiness over anybody else's and hope that everyone else just takes care of themselves. That's not what wisdom looks like. In fact, it's not even what freedom looks like. And it's part of the problem for many of us in our minds. We think the freedom and the liberty that we're trying to protect is the freedom to choose which of the seven fast food burger restaurants I want to give me heart disease. Which one? I should get the choice. Little children in other countries should get to choose which seven fast food restaurants they want to have. We think this is what freedom is, is I should get to choose. I should get to choose. Choose what makes you happy. Pursue your own happiness even if it kills you. That's the American way. It's not about the common good. You see, biblical freedom is not the freedom for me to do whatever I want. Biblical freedom is me becoming free from the sin and the self-focus that separates me from God and from others and even from myself. It's me choosing to submit to God 
who is the only one who can set me free from these sinful habits and addictions that make me really only focus about me and, and care about myself. Freedom is the freedom to love God and others the way I was meant to. And therefore, isolation is something I need to be freed from. It is the freedom from isolation. You see, because we primarily see ourselves as individuals, we don't think ourselves in terms of the communities that we belong to. We think of ourselves as really being kind of above the community. I'm set apart from the community that I belong to. Here's what I mean. I may be a conservative, I may be a liberal, but that's not all that's true about me. There's more that's true about me than that, right? I may be a Braves fan or worse yet, a Hawks fan, <laughs> but I pray every day that's not all that's true of me. And I pray that that's not all that's true of me. Now, the only thing that this might be true for is CrossFit people. That's all they ever talk about. <laughs> it may be the only thing that exists in their life. But see, here's what we want. We all want to be this more than the sum of the communities that I belong to. The communities we belong to somehow become a little bit of jewelry that adorn our own personality. Right? I belong here and I belong here and I belong here, but I'm really me and I'm unique and I'm special. I'm really me. I'm not like all those other CrossFit people. I'm not like all those other people, right? I mean, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm not one of those Christians, right? That's why we have those bumper stickers, right? I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I drink a little wine, and I cuss sometimes. Ain't I cute? Ain't you so special? You don't have to be like all the other Christians. You set yourself apart. I'm not, I'm not like them. I'm, I'm, I'm a me, and Christian is a part of who I am. I, I, I'm me. But there are certain relationships where we do not set ourselves apart from others, where we are fully committed to the other person and for their good, and what you do or say to that person says, some, says something about me. It's called marriage. It's called parenting. What I mean is, you cannot be good with me. You can be good with me and talk trash about the hawks because you're speaking reality, all right? It's going to be bad. But you can't be good with me and say, talk trash about my wife. Or say something bad about my kids. We're, we're, we're not, we're not going to be okay. In fact, I can even be mad at my wife. Or mad at my daughters. And if you agree with me, I'll go, hold up a second. I don't know who you think you're talking about here. In fact, you can tell how healthy a, a marriage or a family is by how that person talks about their spouse when they're not around. How they talk about their kids when, when they're not around. Because see, we know this, and even if you're not sure you believe everything in the Bible, you've experienced this. When you get married, you become one flesh with that person. You are committed, you are united, you, you are the same. What happens to one, it's a, it's a package deal. What you say about her, you're really saying about me. What you say about my kids, you're, you're really saying about me. I mean, in, in, imagine inviting me over to dinner, right? And then you say, hey, you can come in, but your kids can't come in. Right? And if the food's good, I might go in for a second. But I'd be like, I'll bring you some leftovers. Sneak it in my pocket. It'll be fine. But imagine that, right? You know, that's not the way it works. It's a pa package deal. Jesus says his church is his bride. It's his bride. It's a package deal. 
And so he stands and he knocks, 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 knocks on the door of your house. And you say, Jesus, you can come in, but not your bride. Imagine that, right? If I overhear one of my girls talking badly about one of their sisters to a friend, right? You've ever experienced this? I hope I'm saying what everyone else says. I'll pull them to the side and I go, hey, hey, hold on. I get that's your little friend. But that's your sister. And she's going to be your sister forever. The Bible says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you say, hey, Jesus, I like you. I'm just not sure I'm into your kids. Jesus, I'm into you. I just, I'm, your bride's not doing it for me. Imagine that for a moment. See, we have been adopted into the family of God by the body and blood of Jesus, and we have been called to be committed, to be devoted to one another because of him, because of our devotion to him, that we are to be family. And I am beyond thankful for the brothers and sisters in this church who, since as they like to remind me a lot of the times, because some of you are old enough to do this, when I was yay high, <laughs> you were devoted to me. Every big moment of my life has happened within this community. Celebrating my marriage happened within this community, the birth of our first child, our adoption process. I've served alongside people. I've seen lives changed. I've laughed. I've cheered. I've cried with other people here. I've grieved the loss of dear friends in this community. I have been supported and encouraged when I was weak. But mostly my life was not formed in those moments. Those were a reflection of the day-to-day, week-to-week commitment that we've had for one another. Following Jesus is not some kind of momentary decision I make. It is long obedience in the same direction. And I have been walking in this same direction with some of the same people for decades. I think about the weeks that I don't want to show up on a small group call, but I, I scheduled the meeting, so I'm the one that has to be there. And I do for the sake of those people. Because I'm committed to them. They know they can expect me to show up and to be there. And when I show up and they show up, God shows up in our midst. The men in my on-mission group who I give access to my life, and every day we communicate with one another about how we're doing and following Jesus' example, or the brothers and sisters that I share a meal with every week, or the person that for three years I've had a prayer call with every morning, the brothers that I confess my sin to every single day, the people I show up every Sunday to serve alongside. I think about the men and women who right now in this building are showing up every Sunday to invest in my kids like they once invested in me. And some of them are still investing in their, my kids and they invested in me. I think about the people who I have some now who are investing in my kids. And when I was youth minister, I invested in them. And we have together been committed to one another and we have become a family. When I need support, when I need encouragement, when I need wisdom, I have brothers and sisters who I can call upon and they call upon me when they need the same. It is the best moments of life and the worst moments of life and the most mundane moments of life that have been lived in this community with people that I would call as dear to me as flesh and blood. And some days and some weeks, you're not in the mood to show up or make the phone call have a conversation, but when you show up and they show up in the name of Jesus, Jesus shows up. And it doesn't matter if you have the same 
perfect chemistry or the same interests or the same ideas and opinions about life. In fact, most of the people who've had the biggest impact on my life are people I had zero chemistry with. We were not the same age. We were not the same ethnicity. We were not the same gender. We did not come from the same background. We did not share the same interests or personalities, but their commitment to me, my commitment to them, it has changed my life and theirs. See, the commitment to be family is this commitment to just show up. To simply show up for one another and to say that you can count on me to show up. And when I don't show up, you know it. And you care. And you call me on it. It's to lay down my comfort, open my life to you. It's the commitment to love one another like Jesus has loved us. So my question to you is, do you have anybody in this community that expects you to be here? Do you have any relationships, any groups that when you don't show up on the meeting day, they know it and they know your name and they have your phone number and they call you and say, where are you? Where are you at? Do you have anybody like that? If not, would you take a step today? Would you go to the next step center? Would you sign up for the next steps class where we can help you to investigate what life with God in our community looks like? Because there is a life that is free from the isolation and the self-focused living of our world, but it is not found in finding the perfect community with perfect chemistry. It is found in the commitment to say, you are my brother, you are my sister, and I will love you like Jesus has loved me. It's found in committing yourself to others for the sake of God. And to give you some time to talk about that and to think about that, we're going to think about the greatest devotion, the greatest act of commitment shown to us while we were still enemies of God. The body and blood of Jesus given for us. So to come and lead us in this meal of communion, I've asked Ed to come out. Thank you.